This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hello and welcome to the TFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm now joined by Alex Stewart. Hi Joe. Hello Alex, how are you? Yeah. Pretty decent day of the footy, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah, there we go. Also here is Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hello. Hello, Joe. Great to be back. Yeah, fantastic to be back, isn't it? Yeah, I've missed it. I kind of missed it for two days. Yeah, I didn't know what to do with myself this time of night. It's lovely being the centre of attention, isn't it? Sure is. Sure is, yeah. Anyway, lots to talk about today. Uh, Two games. Uh, We're going to begin with uh, Italy and Austria, and we're going to end on... uh, Denmark-Wales, very exciting. A few little uh, other uh, non-Euros-related points in here to uh, to discuss too. But if you like Euros-related points and non-Euros-related points, then you'll find no better place to enjoy both of those things than The Athletic. If you visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, you'll find that for the time being, for a limited time only, you can actually get The Athletic for £1 per month for six whole months. That's the... That's the price of one pint in an expensive a London pub. What a deal that For is. six months you yeah. can do that. Uh, so if you're interested, visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO and uh, just have a browse of the uh, unbelievable work on offer because uh, there really is a lot of it. There we go. Anyway, it's been a fun day of football. Uh, it's a shame, of course, uh, to see Wales go out. I lived in Wales for many years, so I've got a soft spot for them and uh, feel feel a bit bad for them, losing 4-0 to Denmark, but we will talk about that a little bit later. We are, however, going to kick things off uh, by discussing Italy uh, and Austria. Um, also very exciting. We'll talk a bit later about what some of the quarterfinals look like, because hot diggity dog, there's some big games. I feel like the draw is very heavily stacked on one side. Feels uh, like the game's getting pretty big pretty quickly, yeah. which is a little bit strange. It's but I'm not exciting. quite ready for it, but it is exciting. It's yeah. exciting. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we'll talk about all of these things and more after I leave you in the uh, the warm hands and the cool embrace of Seb Stafford Bloor and Alex Stewart. Right, let's begin with Italy now uh, because it took 120 minutes there, Seb. Uh, to get there. I mean, expectations, of course, were for Italy, you know, to walk off with it a bit. They didn't. You know, it took 100 minutes for the first goal to come. There, there were two more goals after that. Uh, Federico Chiesa with the with the opener, which was a, a lovely uh, shot. We'll come to talk about that a bit later. But it's fair today today that they weren't quite firing on all cylinders, or at least they needed that extra half an hour to make it look like an Italy result. Yeah, it's very strange because after about half an hour, we were happily talking amongst ourselves and just kind of expecting Italy to eventually get the goal they needed. And no, they weren't creating really guilt-edged chances, but at the same time, there felt like there was a, you know, um, a, a growing pressure that would eventually tell. And then I remember looking up and it was about 70, 75 minutes and there was no goal and yeah. Austria had their chances. Arnautovic had, um, had a goal ruled out for offside, correctly ruled out for offside. Lovely goal, though. It felt like... You said this on the opening night. So we watched 
Italy against Turkey and everyone got carried away, including me, and said, oh, they were great. That was really, really fun to watch. They were aggressive and attacking and offensive. Which Brilliant. they were. Which they were, but they needed an awful lot of ball to create good chances. Mm -hmm. And they didn't really force any saves. They ended up scoring three goals and that was very, very impressive. Well done. But at the same time, that felt like it came to pass tonight because yeah. a lot of ball... Um, a lot of possession in areas where they might be dangerous, where against teams like Turkey, they were playing that kind of cut pass into the penalty box. And yeah. You had runners going, typically Spinozola actually on the left-hand side was very effective in that role. And tonight, those balls either weren't finding the right men, they weren't quite at the right angle or, or pace, or a defender was cutting them out. So good job, Austria. Italy, I don't know, I'm, I'm scaling back my enthusiasm for them from like a, a five to a four think after that just because um that's a five out of five right? well i i think uh, yeah well, i i mainly because it worried me that when it didn't go well when they lost the momentum they didn't seem able to get it back yep they, won they the actually game slowed time. towards the end of 90 very minutes. much so yeah. very much so and actually when you're able to bring a, a player like federico chiesa onto the pitch with belotti by the way not you know um perhaps not an elite player, but a very, very good Serie A player. Mm -hmm. you know, that's the kind of jolt that you can use to win a game. But without those resources, I, I don't know whether Italy get through that or whether they get out of it without having to go through penalties first. And it was, um, yeah, a little bit of a concern. Yeah, okay. Well, it was interesting to watch. I mean, you, you mentioned Spinazzola already. Yeah. We saw him a couple of times in the first half get mm -hmm. into those positions we've seen in the group stages. Very exciting. They stopped doing that really in the, in the second half, Alex. And in fact, during the whole group stages, they scored seven goals. So I wondered uh, this evening whether this was an issue with the quality of opposition, whether Austria have perhaps had time to watch all of Italy's group games and work out how to stop those sort of incisive uh, box runs. I mean, was it something that Austria did or was it Italy just not being at their best today? How do you stop them from, from scoring? I, th I think it's a combination of the two. So um, we talked when the team sheet came out and Comrade Lima was on the right-hand side in that apparently advanced possession, mm. but not quite. That was, to me, seemed like a very good tactical decision from Foda to have a, a very energetic pressing midfielder to double up uh, and assist defending against Spinazzola's runs, which have been so effective for Italy on the left-hand side. Yeah. You could see there was a moment where we were <laughs> we were sort of looking at the Austra Austrian backline and trying to work out if it was a, a five or yeah. a four. And that was because in in most instances, when Austria formed a low block, they were very deliberately doubling up with the wide attacker and the fullback. Mm. So at times they almost looked like a slightly bold six yeah. uh, at the back. And again, this was to prevent Italy from cutting inside because when you double up on the wide attackers, you can sort of do that at a slightly staggered diagonals so that they they're not just kept against the touchline but they find it much much harder to turn inside yeah so Italy's shot map uh in this game apart from the two shots that resulted in goals which were inside the six yard box very very centrally clustered and from range yeah. um and Italy this this tournament have been very very uh shot productive so they've been getting over 20 shots a game this was 27 but if you can hold them back and you can keep those shots being from the edge of the box or, or slightly wide, even if it's just inside the box, obviously you massively reduce the, the danger that those shots yeah. pose. And that was something that Austria did do very effectively. 
However, as Seb says, also Italy failed to react. Mm-hmm. So with this doubling up on uh, Austria's right-hand side, Italy's left, you would expect them to adjust and try to attack the right-hand side more. Now, granted, that Chiesa goal came from the fact that everyone was so grouped over on Italy's left that the switch pass was on. Yeah. And if you can affect switch passes quickly, that's really effective. They weren't doing that to start with, nor were they really pushing Di Lorenzo forward on the right-hand side. They weren't getting quite the same thrust from Berardi cutting inside because of that doubling up. Yeah. So it's a combination, really. Well, I was going to say, actually, it's not really that much of a, a surprise, the goal in the end, was it? Because it felt Italy had been pressing a little bit in uh, extra time. But also, as Alex says, Berardi cuts inside quite a lot. And yeah. so the, the, the switch pass wasn't really on for that reason. As soon as Chiesa came on, he changed the game and his goal came from outside, right? Yeah, I also feel like Chiesa's a little less predictable. Berardi, you know... I don't think anyone could have predicted the way he scored the goal, No, well, absolutely not. I just mean in terms of his movement. No, I'm agreeing with you. Well, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, You're so so not used to that. Yeah, I don't don't know how to respond to it properly. I I didn't even listen to you. I just retaliated. Uh, Berardi will always come inside. Keza, um, I saw someone on the chat earlier saying I... Um, why isn't Keza starting for Italy? I, I don't know. I, I really like him as a player, but then I, I probably haven't seen him as much as I need to to make that judgment. Um, but yeah. I think you, I said to you after he scored, the only other time I've seen him play was when he scored two uh, for Juventus against uh, Porto. Yeah. So and obviously, which, in my mind, he's well, great. Why isn't he playing? Yeah. And one of those was a really terrific header. Mm. Uh, I've seen a bit more of him than that because. Um, my faithful DAZN uh, subscription is, is good in Germany. Sure. Uh, but I, I'm i not sure. Just every time I see him play, he's doing something effective. Maybe he's not winning games. He's not having as pronounced an effect as he, as he did that night. But he looks like a problem. It looks like something that the... Alex said, actually, while we're watching him, he has a kind of ungainly style, which makes him look a little bit clumsy. Actually, uh, for young people, go and um, Google his father's highlights Enrico Chiesa because they are they look exactly the same on the ball they have the same touches technique shooting um habits they they could be the same player but he has that sort of quality where it's not that smooth he looks a little bit strange when he's running through and he has that tendency to be a bit more aggressive with his movements he's not cutting inside onto a left foot he was going for the back post and Mm. a little bit of a, a strange bit of control um he kind of kisses the football as as it as he controls it it's quite strange if you look at it um, but great finish and yeah like what a luxury to bring a player like that off the bench and and also if you're if you're a defensive unit and you spent the whole game tucking inside and making sure that that cut in field isn't available and all of a sudden 95 minutes into the game you're asked to do the exact opposite like your concentration is probably going to fail you at some point so um it felt really harsh in Austria actually because they played ever so well but uh sure. yeah great goal well Alex another thing I wanted to ask you was uh we looked at the the lineups before the game began. And the main thing, you know, the main noticeable thing was that Locatelli had been dropped to the bench uh, and Verratti had come in his place. Now, this wasn't entirely unexpected. Of course, Verratti was unavailable for selection in the first game or two due to injury. And we assume he would have been the first choice uh, otherwise. But Locatelli was a player who really impressed in the group stages. And it feels, although Verratti had a great game today, I think, it does feel that he offers something a bit different. And, it, you know, given that the result... Um, well, the result was similar, but the, the performance was slightly different for Italy today. Did that play any part at all for you, do you think? I think the issue that Italy have is the 
the threat posed by those runners from midfield is considerably diminished without Locatelli. Mm-hmm. So if you look at who took shots for Italy, every Italian player, obviously excluding Donnarumma, um, but every Italian player had a shot except for Verratti, Jorginho and Cristante who came on as mm. a defensive midfielder. <clears throat> so that that shows that there is a general willingness of this team to get forwards except for that holding kind of pair there. Barella obviously plays a much more advanced role. Now that's fine. It doesn't really matter. But if a lot of what you're creating results in shots from that sort of area I was talking about, just outside the penalty area, what you want is a player who's really used to arriving in those positions and taking those shots, and in some instances to really good effect, like we've seen with Locatelli, both for Italy and also for Sassuolo. So I think it robs Italy of a bit of that dynamism. Granted, if you played Verratti on the left-hand side and Locatelli as the holding midfielder, that would require an adjustment in how those players get forwards. It would ask quite a bit of Verratti to hold back and tuck inside, or maybe Di Lorenzo would push up to make more of a kind of midfield role rather than acting as a sort of more orthodox attacking fullback. It is possible to do those tweaks. I guess what Mancini is is looking at is that Jorginho has anchored this side thus far. He understands that role. And although Locatelli brings a lot and Verratti brings a lot, like Jorginho is the one around whom it all revolves. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's hard. I would try playing Locatelli in that role, but we're now in the stage where you know, a tactical mistake that can't be rectified really, really instantly, like we'll come to look at, is, you know, that could be the difference between progressing and not. So it's very, very difficult to make those calls now. You thought Verratti had a a great game today, Seb, didn't you? What is it that he brings that is different to to Locatelli? I think we saw it in the first 20 minutes, Joe. I think it was a, he is, that technical ability of his can be applied pretty much anywhere within between the two penalty boxes and in both of them. Um, but there's a kind of, as a spiky spitefulness to Verratti, which um, has obviously seen him collect a lot of yellow cards during the course of his career. But he's very aggressive without the ball too, and that's good. One of the best chances Italy had in the first half was when I think he, he retrieved possession right on the edge of the Austrian um, box. There was a, a sort of a, um, a loose ball which he got to first, kind of really rugged tackle, pushes it out to I think Spinozola, and it eventually ends up being a a shot slash wide but Verratti is almost perfect as a midfield player because he has every attribute that you'd want he is great receiving the ball great passing the ball he is great on the ball in terms of like his technical ability and he's also really imagine really nasty to play against can you imagine lining up if you went to power league then you were playing against five Marco Verratti's sure and start that is the absolute nightmare because they're good at everything yeah. Um, and he's that player. And he, I think he's, it's funny because his career has been quite strange because I think he, had he played somewhere else other than PSG, had he played, for instance, for a, a you know, a, a Manchester City perhaps or a Bayern Munich or one of those teams that isn't, who, whose league season occurs a little bit more in the spotlight, I think Marco Verratti is, has a, yeah, just a much bigger reputation than he does. He's a super player. Can I say, player. like building on your power league uh, yeah. uh, analogy, Marco Verratti is the sort of player that I would be afraid of to play in the yeah. Power League scenario. Not only just because he's... Oh, I'd be biting really, your really ankles good. and well, snapping this is the thing. tackles. As, and... as a tall and large man, yeah. 
I'm not afraid he of would, many other footballers. He would be like, your nightmare. I feel like I could push the people around, and I and yeah. uh, no, you know, I, I'm sure I would. I'd be rubbish, and they'd take the ball from me. But I wouldn't. Hurt. I feel like Marco Verratti is made of stone, and if I fell on top of him, he'd kind of just go through my entire body. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? He wouldn't move at all. Yeah, he, and I'd I'd sort of wrap around him like jelly. He's kind of like a, a sort of a Roberto Duran of the power league, basically. Sure, sure. Just, um, and also, like there, there's a there's an attitude that goes with him, um, which is quite funny because. He um, he has the face of a choir boy, doesn't he? He looks sort of innocent, and you know, butter wouldn't melt. But he um, he's nasty in a good way, mm-hmm. like a nasty midfielder. But he's um, he's great. Uh, it's really interesting because that Locatelli debate that's going to come back, I think, at some point. Because I sure. think Alex is right. I think having having that runner from midfield and um, served Italy so well through the first two games, um, and you wonder if they do come up against a team like Belgium. I think I want. Probably that extra man making late runs into the box. I want, I want the, I want that Belgian midfield to be thinking about what they have to do without the ball as well. I mm-hmm. think that could be a benefit. Yeah. Well, so I, I wonder if the answer to that is actually to play a Locatelli, Jorginho, Verratti midfield three. Get rid of Barella. Get rid of Barella. Push Verratti up, almost into the ten slot. Potentially interesting that kind of position. How unusual. Yeah, yeah. I don't well, know. If not he's that done unusual. That it's quite unusual. I think, no, I think he's done it before. Yeah, he's done a few times yeah. before. Yeah. yeah, once or twice. Yeah, a yeah few times. maybe you've done a few times. But I, uh, I wouldn't well. consider him to be anything more than a, a number eight. I, well. I think he could play as a sure. number ten or as a holding midfielder. Mark Verratti very much. It would be embarrassing though if someone said that he'd never played there. Well, theoretically, that would be embarrassing if that were to have happened. Yeah, I do want to 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 draw about against Belgium, for example, where. Having that, yes, Barella's energy and his bursts into the right half space are effective, and particularly because Belgium have this tendency to push their left wing back mm-hmm. really, really mm-hmm. high in the press. Sneaking into that space in behind there, I think, would work quite well. But also, they're going to need to control the ball against Belgium, and they're yeah. going to need to have compactness in that midfield because. Belgium will either keep the ball really well through Tielemans and De Bruyne or they'll be able to launch through passes to Lukaku who can run on and score. And so you need to you need to stop that being an option. Would you worry about and, your creativity without Barella? Because I I don't know if this is just based on what we saw tonight, but it, to me, Italy feel like they need to find the perfect ball. Yeah, and Barella I, is clearly like a strength in that area. You do you would you would sacrifice creativity. Or yeah. defensive strength, but as Grace Robertson did in her little email out today, um, it's the short towel thing. If you or blanket, sorry, yes. Yeah, so this is you, the duvet thing, right? So you cover your head that. or you yeah. cover your short towel, but you you get cold duvet, one way sure. or another. You get cold one way or another. <laughs> yeah. You got confused between a short towel and a right. duvet. <laughs> Well, it's, it's short it, towel. Gets you you in the actual analogy, I, I think when you get a, home and you go to bed, are you blanket. pulling a little short towel over yourself to to cover yourself from the night. Mm. 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 Tell me about the short towel. Analogy. I'm not going to discuss my sleeping. No, go on. Tell me about you. the short towel analogy. Um, so you, the 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 idea basically is that if you have attacking potential, you sacrifice defense. If mm. you privilege defense, you sacrifice attack. And the point that Grace was making, which was really astute, is that in club football, because you can buy players in, you can basically lengthen the duvet anyway, so that the the or towel or blanket or whatever it is we're talking about becomes a bath towel. Sure, a bath something sheet. great like that. Yeah. One of those really long ones you steal from hotels. Bath sheets. Um, 
Whereas in international football, you you can't because mm-hmm. the the pool is that much smaller. Yeah. And once you're in a tournament, you're then making these decisions based on an a already small pool because it's only what maximum twenty six players. Sure. Um, I think against Belgium, that's a trade off worth having because I think there's enough weakness in Belgium's defensive line that one of those twenty seven shots will get in or Chiesa will. burst through whereas the danger for me is allowing Belgium time and space in midfield I would very 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 much be lining Chiesa up against Vertonghen oh yes absolutely that is a serious weakness and potentially a massive mismatch Um, so it'd be interesting to see whether he gets called in I feel like playing Berardi against Vertonghen kind of favours him because it it um, it doesn't ask quite as many questions of his age and his pace um, because his legs are on the way, and I'm not going to say have gone, but he's not the player he was. If you get Chiesa on the outside, or if you have a player on the ball with Chiesa making a run over the top, that's a tr- that's that's going to be difficult for Belgium yeah. to deal with. I think. I, I think Belgium will find it hardest if Italy are direct. Yeah. We should say it could be Portugal. Could sure. be Portugal. Like, for, yeah, for anyone, yeah, anyone no, totally. any yeah. viewers or listeners that are confused listening to us now, uh, we are hypothesizing that uh, that you know Italy could face Belgium in the next round because they will face the winner of Belgium Portugal and so this is uh, just sort of one of the outcomes a quick thing to insert here before it becomes irrelevant top tip top tip for uh, for listeners if you're looking for a large towel you do need to search for bath sheet now that's something that i found before my mother told me about this i kept trying to buy large towels you know and every time the towel arrived it really wasn't that big yeah until I started searching for bath sheets, because they really are large towels. And uh, it's strange that they're called that. But if you're looking for a large towel and you've not been able to get over that hurdle yet, bath sheets. That was a top tip. It was that a top tip. You know what? It yeah. changed my life, that. Yeah. Now I've got two bath sheets and I'm happy as Larry. Yeah. What if it's Portugal, Alex? Um, then it's easier for Italy. Okay. I, d- I disagree with that, actually. I feel like I've been tricked by Portugal because I, I think the temptation is to believe, ah, they're not, they're not all that. They're dis- they've disappointed us. Their midfield is a little bit of a shambles. They can't work out how to kind of, um, how to, to, to sort of properly link the attacking midfield with the defensive midfield. But if they learn the lessons from the group stage and Renato Sanchez sure. plays, I'd be interested to see what happens but there. I think, I think the issue. Certainly what I detect from Portuguese fans is that uh, he doesn't really learn the lessons. Yeah, and, and, and I, you know, yes, if if they do line up with Moutinho and Renato Sanchez flanking Danilo, that is That's the three definitely that more yeah. of a challenge for Italy. I, I still think that there are enough. I mean, so in the Portugal-France game, the number of times Portugal's back four was caught very very square yeah. and having to turn onto these balls that Pogba was playing through which is why Pogba excelled in that game um, and and the Portuguese midfield wasn't giving him the space and the pressure to stop him doing that so he was able to pick that pass and then play it against a back four who was stood kind of square on and firm and then went oh gosh yeah. oh have to turn around now I, I can Ooh, it's see. Mbappe. Oh. <laughs> right now, if you're if you're allowing Jorginho or Verratti the time to pick those passes, yeah, then it doesn't matter if you need twenty seven shots. Like one of those three balls is going to work, or there's going to be a ball out to Spinazzola, who will turn Nelson Semedo inside out, 
and it'll be fine. If you're Italian. Yeah, no, I don't disagree with that. I just, um, I think we just feel like we've been waiting all tournaments to see how talented Portugal are and how, what that talent can look like in concert. So I don't know. I'm not ready to write them off just yet, but yeah, I Let, still... Let's go back to the quality of opposition though, because... Okay. Italy, as discussed, have faced Turkey, who we found out were rubbish. Chaos, yeah. Uh, Wales, who we've seen today, and we'll come to, to discuss that shortly, yeah. let in a lot of goals. Yeah. Uh, Switzerland, who, you know, are a decent decent enough team, but obviously uh, beatable, we should say. Uh, but, you know, Belgium or Portugal is a very, very different challenge to any that has faced Italy so far. And as a casual viewer, I watch today's game, and I think they need more than 90 minutes to break down Austria. Now, that's no mean feat. Austria are... Uh, a difficult team to break down. They have lots and lots of, of yeah. good players. But I also feel that Austria offered um, a threat in this game, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and with a better team, with better attackers, I feel like Italy are conceding more than one goal in this sort of game, with this kind of performance today. Now, whether they can score goals or not against Portugal or Belgium is sort of besides the point. I feel like they create so many chances that they're going to score goals in whichever game that they lose if they don't end up winning the entire tournament. The question really is, uh, how well will their defence stand up to scrutiny when it's actually challenged? Because I feel like we haven't really seen that yet. Maybe that's not fair, but... No, I, I don't think it's unfair because I, I, think, I don't think it's necessarily an issue of individual defenders and individual defensive quality. I think it might be a question of balance. Mm -hmm. so we've talked all tournament about how aggressive Spinozola um, is down the left. Uh, De Lorenzo is, is not quite as aggressive, but performs a similar function. Um, and you're right, there were chances this evening which, if they'd fallen into the hands of a uh, better forward or a better side... Or Cristiano Ronaldo. Or Romelu Lukaku, yeah. it's a completely different issue. Um, what I'd say is that I, I, don't, I don't expect it to be much tougher um, in the attacking sense for Italy just because I thought Austria's defensive networks were really, really good. I sure. thought the right side, the, um, I've become a big Stefan Leiner fan over the last six months. He's been, um, he's at Gladbach at the moment. I thought Conrad Leimer was very good ahead of him tonight, uh, as he was last week on the left-hand side. Yeah. Zava Schlager, an Alex Stewart favourite, was was pretty good in defensive midfield. Um, and the kind of the Drag uh, Dragovic Hinteraga defensive unit was good as well. So it's not like, I wonder whether... I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't I don't necessarily think that we're going to have a situation where Italy is suddenly going to find themselves facing a different quality of defence. I just think it's a question of how much team, how much they commit forward. Yeah. Um, and I don't I don't really have a, I don't really have a problem with the um, the balance in the midfield. I think the centre back partnership is pretty good. I don't know about whether Chiellini's coming back into it. Uh, I know we're going to talk a little bit about Donnarumma, the goalkeeper, who I thought made a couple of really good saves and did very little else, which is kind of like a, a classic. So I don't know. I just It's quite exciting though, isn't it? It feels... tonight. There were times tonight when I thought, this is kind of what happens when a team gets used to winning and when a team develops that as a habit and when someone comes along who interrupts it, then there's a little bit of a, oh, what's happening here? It's like um, mm. It's like if a boxer gets used to just knocking people out in the second round again and again and again and then... They throw their best punch, someone gets knocked down, but then they get up again. And then it's round three. They don't three. really know what to do sure. after that. And I felt Italy had a, I don't know what you'd call that condition, um, but a little bit of anxiety maybe, I, sure. I don't know. So we'll see. Um, but balance and those fullbacks as well, that's the, that's the key, I think, in playing a Belgium or a Portugal because both have a lot of pace on the on the, on the counter stack theoretically. Yeah. And that could be a, you, you, we saw like in one of Turkey's good moments, which feels like a very long time ago now, um, 
they had a few uh, breaking opportunities in the in the first half of that first game. We thought, "Ooh, Italy look a bit vulnerable there," mm-hmm. and we haven't seen that weakness examined ever again, really. So, mm. be interesting to see what I, think. I want to examine it. You do, yeah. Get the spotlights on, see where it, where it is. Well, I think uh, the exciting thing is that uh, whoever it is, Portugal or Belgium, it will be examined in the next game. So that's going to be fun. Uh, we will be back just after this short break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, Priceline. Okay, we're back. Uh, and before we move on to talk about Denmark and Wales, uh, I wanted to bring up uh, Donna Rimmer into this conversation, uh, Alex, because uh, he uh, is moving to PSG for the new season. And I thought we'd just take an opportunity to once again say, poor old Kaylor Navas, <laughs> Tifo's favourite goalkeeper. What does a man have to do to be taken seriously? Seriously, though, what does he have to do? Oh, I wasn't asking about him. Anyway, um, I just tried one of your <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah. I was doing, your, no, I, I was helping I, you. I was I giving you the space. No, because it's the... I was playing into it. I was giving the space. I looked over there confused. The whole point is, you, you know, confused face. You, you well, let it lie. You let I it know, lie. I know, but I panicked. But yeah, that it's okay. It's okay. It's all, okay. Trying to be funny is very new to you. So let's just move on. But we'll come back to that. Well done. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, it's weird because Navas, we were talking about this before that, that Navas hasn't won the European Cup because he's an okay goalkeeper playing behind a really good team. Yeah. Like he has excelled consistently for whichever team he's played for. And it just feels like for some reason, I don't know whether this was a trend that was established when Buffon moved to Juventus for that astronomical fee and suddenly people started buying big name goalkeepers for big money. Whereas yeah. previously it had never been a position where that was a thing. Um, that the top clubs like PSG feel they need to attract that sort of player. Mm. Where Kayla Navas statistically last season was one of the outstanding goalkeepers yeah. uh, in Europe's top five leagues. If you look at post-shot expected goals, plus yeah. or minus, uh, he basically concedes fewer than he should based on the quality of the shots he faced. It's really hard to remember any massive Kaylor Navas mistakes. There was one, I think, in the most recent Champions League campaign where he misjudged something. But it really sticks out because he doesn't do it very often. And I I just don't know why he kind of gets, like, not overlooked. Yes, overlooked. Yes, he does. Overlooked overlord. When, when people have conversations about the top goalkeepers in European football, his name is never in that conversation. It's status. Yeah. It's status. So you have your, if you have your kind of your Mount Rushmore of European football's goalkeepers, um, he's not on it. It's completely unjust, but you don't associate Keylor Navas with a thing. So for instance, Manuel Neuer, you think of, you know, um, um, know, playing a kind of sweeping role, being good with his feet, being, you know, having all of that confidence. David De Gea, or the sort of the previous incarnation of David De Gea is his identity is reflexes and shot stopping. So for, for Navas, it feels like, most people only see him, and I, again, I, I think this is another, this is kind of the Verratti problem um, lately. People don't realise how good he, he has been at PSG. They've got less excuse for the Real Madrid thing because I, I don't know like 
how much more in the spotlight you can get than winning three European Cups. But um, it does feel like that. It doesn't feel like this is a this is a consequence of a proper reflection on what his abilities are because mm. maybe he's heading to Spurs. Oh, well, don't I've do heard it. him link with the don't uh, do it, Kaylor. I've heard him link with the manager's maybe. job. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Thanks for trampling all over my joke. No, okay. That was uh, I was trying to line it up, but you just rushed in like a I don't have a sense of humor about this at the moment. We know this. <laughs> You've been prodding me about this all day, and I will not. I've resisted that joke about three times already this evening. Yeah, Yeah. it's disappointing, though, isn't it? Do you think his height has anything to do with it? Because he's a little shorter than the average goalkeeper. Yeah, I don't know. I think those assumptions about how tall a goalkeeper has to be probably died a little bit with people like Buffon, um, who are by no means sure he's a a tall guy, but he's just he's not he's not six foot seven. Mm. I'm trying to say, and not every goalkeeper has to look like Thibaut Courtois. Um, you know, agility is important. Handling is important. Being good with your feet is really important. Yeah. Um, so the position and the requirements of it have changed. I don't know. I just think it's a, he is destined to be undervalued and underappreciated. In 20 years time, someone will tell you that a guy called Kaelon Navas was won three European Cups and all manner of other trophies across the continent. Mm. And people go, oh yeah, he was really good. Yeah. Um, so. Well, let's, let's, uh. Let's make sure that Kaylor Navas knows that we here at TIFO, we hey, so admire Liam, you. Liam in the um, in the chat says Jan Sommer is a short goalkeeper, but he's good. Yeah, excellent point. He's um, he's like I think he's not quite the ideal of the modern goalkeeper. But he's a really good example of someone who had he been playing twenty years ago, some youth coach would have said, "No, no, no, you're too small, go away." Mm-hmm. Now, like you, you can kind of. As long as a goalkeeper can be probably above about five eleven, you know, six yeah. foot. You know, up to about, you know, six foot four is a good height, I guess. You just don't have to be seven foot. You don't have to be a basketball player. They told me I was too big. Did they really? No, of course not. (laughs) I got slightly obsessed with the Lens goalkeeper, who is about five foot ten. (laughs) And when when you watch Lens play, as I'm sure you will do, uh, he really is discernibly shorter than many of his teammates. Um but he plays very aggressively yeah. and like a cat gets Well, yeah, kind of, he gets right forwards, narrows the angles, leaps around and it works for him. Like he's, he's a technically good goalkeeper. Um, Navas obviously is not that short, but I, I kind of wonder whether, <clears throat> whether what people want now in their goalkeepers at bigger clubs is somebody who is either a, uh, of a flashy goalkeeper. I don't mean flashy in a bad way, but but Not someone like a Neuer or a Ter Stegen he, who yeah, okay. will come out and dominate an area in front yeah. of their box, or they want somebody who is uh, kind of talismanic and shouty. And oh. Navas is neither of those things. He's he just does everything very well. It's, it's just great. It's a lack of personality. Like no, I don't mean that as a criticism. I don't mean he doesn't have a personality. I just mean he has a lack of tangible personality for people who watch the game to grasp. And therefore, he kind of just fades into the background a little bit. Um, I also wonder whether one one of the problems for him was, if you think about the personalities within um, that Real Madrid team, the one the European Cups, that's pretty difficult to have your own identity within that. If you're a sure. goalkeeper at Real Madrid, yeah, um, and you're not Ike Casillas, it's tricky. Like you, you got Ronaldo, you got Di Maria, you got Benzema, Kroos, Modric. It's Sergio Ramos, it's, it's like that's a very, very long list of yeah. um, very recognizable players. It's, you know, you're just going to be a, you know, you remember in um, Almost Famous when they make the t shirt and you've got sure. a guitarist who's in focus and everybody else is kind of blurred in the background. Yeah. Pretty easy to be a blurred background guy at Real Madrid, I would have thought. Yeah. 
Uh, with Lons, by the way, I'm talking about Jean-Luc Lecker, not Farinas. Okay. By the, uh, no, I'm answering a okay. point on there. Yeah, Gabriel Alve talks about Jorg Campos. Yeah, great fun, because he was also, he was tiny, but he used to design his own goalkeeping kits. And there were yeah. these sort of bright-coloured, surfing-like um, bits that he used to wear at World Cup. Is that Jorge Campos? Yeah, yeah. he used to... Um, Played he, as a striker as well. Yeah, not in the kind of comes-up-for-corners way. They would no, give like him an outfield shirt and say, go yeah. and play out. He was really, really good footballer. Um, go, and, go, and, go and search for his highlights. That will Speaking be, yeah. of, of goalkeepers, uh, yeah. someone mentioned this in the chat and it reminded me, have either of you ever seen any of Ben Foster's YouTube videos? Of uh, the ones... Yes, one or two. The cycling goalkeeper. They're great. The little backstage ones that where he brings his webcam and puts it behind the goal. Yeah, yeah, they're cool. There was one I was watching where he was going into, I think they were playing Man United, and he was away at Old Trafford going through the little... Yeah, it's very, very entertaining. I um, So a couple of seasons ago, Shane Long scored the fastest goal in Premier League history against Ben Foster at Watford, and I was covering that game. And after the press conferences have finished, everyone's kind of sitting in the auditorium doing, you know, writing their... their post-match pieces and doing some editing. Ben Foster just barges in and everyone's like, oh, goodness. And you'd think someone who's just conceded the, the first goal in Premier League history, a bit embarrassed. And he, he he dances through just shouting, I'm a record breaker, I'm a record breaker, I'm a record breaker. <laughs> and he's, um, I, I don't know him personally, I've, I've never met him, but- um, He seems really fun. Everyone who has said he's just a, a genuinely decent bloke um, mm. who uh, has uh, his heart in the right place and thinks about the game in the way that you probably should. He seems like a, a nice chap, and sure. his videos are cool. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Well, speaking of cool, yeah, Denmark scored four goals sure against Wales, which is cool, depending on your perspective, I suppose. To other people, it's not cool at all. Uh, but to some people, it's very, very cool. Um, of course, they won handsomely, Seb. I'm not sure that anyone saw quite that coming. I mean, we had a couple of uh, predictions here for Denmark uh, victory in the office, and some uh, half and half, I think, for Wales and half for Denmark. 4-0, though, it doesn't flatter them. They played very, very well. Uh, there's lots of interesting things to talk about from this game. But yeah, first of all, nobody saw that coming, right? Very uh, few people. No, I think we all expected a little bit more from Wales. Um, yes. And the other side of the coin is... Or that, a little less from Denmark. Well, yeah, because I, I, I think I tweeted this at the time, but it amazes me that Denmark have firstly suffered the thing that they went through uh, in the first game of the tournament, but also, um, pragmatically, they lost such an influential player from the center of their side and yet they're still playing really good football they're not yeah. kind of they're not playing around the areas that christian erickson would have been in yeah they are playing really neat really well constructed technical football it's working really well they were far too good for wales and that's before you get to the obvious point which is they've something terrible happened sure uh, Thankfully, it had a happy ending, but something terrible happened. It was a trauma that they suffered, yeah. and they're still really excellent. But Wales, um, other Wales are shambles. Like I thought for other than that first 15 minutes, I thought yeah. um, they didn't deal well with this, the um, the Danish switch from a uh, back three to a back four. We'll probably cover that in more detail. I thought at the end, when they started to lose their discipline and they, started, they conceded those two late goals. The I red card. Yeah, the red card, I don't think it was a red card. I think it was a player frustrated and it was a bit of a stupid tackle. It was just a bit of immaturity uh, from Harry Wilson. You see that happen, though, and you see yellow mm -hmm. um, most times. So that was unusual. But I Well, we'll, we'll come back to talk about Wales uh, yeah. later on in, in, in this segment. But let's pick up a point that you just dropped down there about the move from a back three to a back four, Alex. Because uh, for the first 10 minutes or so, it seemed as, very much as though Wales 
were on top of the game. They had six shots. Uh, Bale and Ramsey looked really, really dangerous. And then in the 14th minute, it took us a while to, to work out. We were debating what had happened. You noticed Andreas Christensen in the midfield. Uh, and he, of course, had moved from being one of the three centre-backs into that uh, deep midfield role. Denmark shifted to a back four. And Wales, from that point, coincidentally or not, we'll find out from your answer, I suppose, faded from the game and never seemed to respond to it. Yeah. It was quite a stark <laughs> it was, change. Yeah, it was stark. Um, and it, it was it was sufficiently stark that, look, tactical tweaks happen in games all of the time, but this was an unusually significant shift after an unusually short period of time. And the fact that Wales then kind of produced nothing thereafter until a kind of brief rally um, at the beginning of the second half, I think you have to assume that this was the cause. And mm. I think what was happening a lot before was that Bale was sort of strolling around the pitch. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Like he was... He, he was, started on the right, didn't he? He started on the right. He was dropping quite deep into the right half space around the kind of halfway line, maybe five, ten yards up from that. And because he wasn't really running around a lot, he wasn't getting picked up. And that meant that when the ball then came to him he quite often had space to drive forwards. Loads of space. Loads and loads of space. And sometimes that would result in a shot, sometimes in a cross. But it it meant that because he was picking that kind of pocket of space up, and this was partly because, as we discussed at the time, so Denmark had a double pivot midfield when they were in the 3-4-3. And what that means is that either one of the centre-backs has to push up to, because Wales were playing effectively a, a 2-plus-1 in midfield, so in order to match them, you've either got to have a centre-back pushing forwards or a wing-back tucking inside. But the centre-back who's pushing forwards is having to push forwards quite a long way to pick up Gareth Bale. Mm. And and in this instance, I think it was Vestergaard was playing on that left-hand side. Mm. Now, Vestergaard, as a Southampton fan, I appreciate what he's good at, but I also know what he's <laughs> not good at, which is moving quickly and turning quickly. Mm. And so if he He's missed- like a lorry. Yeah, he's like an oil tanker. He just, sure. you know. So if he gets that wrong and then Bale is running at him and twisting this way and that way and, and the ball goes outside or inside, like Vestergaard is screwed at that point. So it makes sense to sit off and, and hope that somebody else is going to do something that wasn't happening because they were trying to counter these wide attacks from the fullbacks. And it was a really simple change. And I think the point that, I think it was you who said it when we were watching the game, was that it happened so seamlessly. Yeah. It seemed like there wasn't a big discussion. It wasn't like someone was summoned over to the touchline. You didn't and notice the instructions or anything. No. It, just, it just happened. And, and they had played, so when, when they started the game against Finland, they lined up in a 4-3-3. Mm. Most of their games in qualifying had been a 4-3-3. And I think probably what, what, they figured was because Wales have used two systems as well in this tournament. So they probably will have gone into that game, not being sure if Wales were going to play the the back five, like they did against Italy with Ampadu then stepping forwards into the DM role and build up, which obviously Ampadu can't do because he's suspended, but um, or whether they would play a back four like they had done in other games. So I think they, it was a switch that was almost certainly lined up. Yeah. You know, if, if this is what's happening, if they're looking good in the game, if they've started with a back four, this is what we'll do. And Christensen is very much a centre-back who can play as a defensive midfielder. He's good in possession. There was one brief moment where he controlled the ball, spun and carried it through a couple of players. Seb was 
surprised that it was Chris. Yeah. I, I was surprised also. But he, you know, he's that kind of centre-back rather than a Yannick Vestergaard, who is more of a kind of stroll forwards with the ball, but mm-hmm. not somebody to take it in tighter areas. So it worked really well for them. I mean, it, 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 you picked it up straight away, but it's fair to say that it threw us for five minutes because the impact was so immediate yeah. and so vast that I think I was watching it thinking like something else must have happened because that's I asked you about you said yeah he's just moved from there to there yeah that's it that's the only thing that's happened the thing is it is unusual to see a tactical not only to see a tactical change that distinct but also to see one that effective yeah generally speaking the only time that you'll see something really change a game like that is if a player is suddenly ordered to man mark another player. But what's really interesting about what Denmark did is that nobody man marked Bale or man marked Ramsey. Yeah, yeah. So the player that was taking Bale was changing. And in fact, one of the things that Christensen stepping up into that midfield role meant was that Delaney could could drop back and take Bale sometimes. Christensen could push up and take Bale sometimes. So it wasn't like they went, oh gosh, Bale's controlling the game. Let's stick a lumpy centre back on him and try and cancel him out. It it was, I think that's why it was harder to kind of appreciate. Yeah. Because it was such a big shift, but from such a simple thing to do. Yeah. Like that, that doesn't happen very often. Even the smallest beings can change the course of history. Or so said the uh, elfin witch in lord of the rings remember old uh cape blanchett yeah do you remember yeah yeah she says it to frodo doesn't is it frodo yeah yeah i get confused between the the bagginses someone else with blonde hair is um casper dolberg <laughs> that was who, um, seamless <laughs> thanks who had a great game actually a really really good game seb uh he scored um lovely goal he uh seemed very aggressive and very up for it from the beginning um Tell me about that and him. Nice to see, because it seemed as if, obviously, uh, everyone was aware of Dolberg from quite a young age. And when he came through, I think the sort of his sort of breakout moment was probably when Ajax had that run to the Europa League final when they lost to Manchester United. Everyone yeah. was sort of, you know, this is a this is a future you know, top tier centre forward, someone that's mm. going to you know occupy a you know, very prominent place in the game. Didn't really happen, and it felt as if he lost his way a little bit. I mean, previously, people were kind of connecting with moves to Barcelona, Real Madrid, and, you know, major English clubs. Where is he now? Nice. Nice. Um, which is by no means a bad club or a bad move. Sure. It's just not quite... It reminded me a little bit of, of what happened to Rafa van der Vaart when he left Ajax. Yeah. he. Everyone thought, right, well, you will go straight to Ajax or Manchester United, and it, uh, Real Madrid or Manchester United. And he did eventually get to Real Madrid, but he went to Hamburg first. Sure. Um, which was a little bit different. Um, Dolberg, I've always thought, like, really nice, delicate skill for someone that's big, which is a nice way of saying good feet for a big man, I guess. Yeah. But he generally does. And he there's a there's a craft to his goal scoring, which I've always loved. And I, I think which we all saw in that first goal, which is a nice move and a very pure hit. But it's also one of those where he's used the defense and the goalkeeper's position against them. And there aren't very many goalkeepers who, uh, very many centre forwards who score goals in his artistic ways. And if you go through his back catalogue, you see this time and again, there's a sort of a, a delicacy and a, a yeah, craft, I guess, is, is the best way of describing it. 
It's really nice to see him do something good mm. on a big stage again. I mean, um, he, he ran riot today in this game. Like, it felt like Wales yeah. couldn't deal with him at all. Every well, time there was a second ball, uh, he, it, it seemed to fall to him, stick to him. And he was... I, li- I, li- I know what you mean about the kind of big man, good feet thing, because he, he, as well as controlling the ball beautifully and working it through in lots of lovely little touches, he just looks so strong as well. Yeah. Like, they couldn't get near him. It's that perfect mixture. And actually, there was a... Beyond the goals, there was this moment in um, in the first half where he broke down the left-hand side of the Welsh penalty box, beat about three players and got to the byline. And I think it ended up with, I want to say, Braithwaite having a shot saved by Danny Ward at the near post, that kind of one where you, you save with his feet. Mm. I think that was right. Mm. Might have been a different player, but it was it was created by Dolberg, and this is the player that people were waiting to see. It's like this all round forward who does the the goal scoring parts of the position, but is also a problem in, in all kinds of areas, not just in the six yard box or yeah. the penalty box, but outside of it too. And he's someone that can create um, you know shot shot taking actions for other players and chances for sort of uh, fullbacks breaking down the down the down the outside and overlapping. It's really interesting to see and. I guess it comes down to a player with confidence versus yeah. one that perhaps had his self-belief a little bit knocked. Sure. Um, I'm not still not quite sure why. I don't know what happened to Kasper Dolberg to kind of change that trajectory. But Life happens. Yeah, life happens. Um, but it seems like life is happening in a happy way now. Sure. Well done, Kasper Dolberg. <laughs> well done, Sam. That's a great way of rounding that sentence. Life is happening in happening a happy way. Happening in a happy way. It is 11.30, isn't it? We, no we excuses. We've had two latest. days off. Uh, Joachim uh, Mailer as well, Alex, uh, was another exciting player to watch today. Tell me a little bit about him. Um, yeah, so he he first popped up for me when he was at Genk and was a extremely aggressive attacking right back when he was there. Mm-hmm. Um, since moving to Atalanta, and I think he was linked with some Premier League clubs, but he, he moved to Atalanta. He's taken up the wing back role. He has played on the right and also on the left. Obviously, the left is where he was today. Uh, and there is a good article. I'm trying to remember who it's by. I want to say Michael Cox on the Athletic, looking at why some teams are deploying deploying right sided uh, fullbacks in the left slot. That's it. Might that's have quite been Tom Warville. It was one Could of them. Been, yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. Maybe even Mark Harry. Who knows? I mean, there's they, many they quality writers on the athletic slash morph into yeah, sure. Um, but he he is just a very very dynamic, very aggressive fullback. He's not afraid to take shots. Plenty of shots, in fact, which yeah. really suits Atalanta's style. Um, and you know, he he sort of moved there, I think, as a development project because at the time. Castagnier was there as well um, and he's I, I don't know if he's playing constantly there but you know they they have very good options in that position but he's he's just very modern in the sense that he wants to be aggressive he wants to attack he wants to provide that overlap which really suits Atalanta's system but he can also defend and when yeah. he played in a more regular flat back four uh, in, in uh, Ghent he was very very good at that too so he's He's the sort of player that clubs should be looking at. Well, I was going to say, lots of people uh, were asking us to talk about him in, in the chat and a few people asking, where's next for Mela? Um, Well, I, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because Atalanta is the kind of team where they play very, very good football, but they play quite unorthodox football in terms of, you know, stylistically. There aren't many teams that are like what they're doing. And so you have to wonder... 
the degree to which those players can adapt. But then we have seen a right-back, right-wing-back come from Atalanta to the Premier League and excel in his first season in Castanier at, at Leicester. So somewhere, somewhere that wants either a, a super-aggressive right-back or a right-wing-back, but one who is part of forming this kind of like 5-2-3 system um, where the width is maintained by those players and then other ones cut inside. He would be really, really good there. So Chelsea, if they didn't have Rhys James. I was that, thinking more Arsenal. Arsenal. Because that that's what, you know, that, that kind of getting forwards and pushing up into that slot where we, because we recorded the Ben White video earlier, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I don't know if I can mention or not, but yeah, why not? sure. Um, you know, looking at, at the way that Arteta has tried to build up and, and that slot being a bit of a weakness for Arsenal consistently. Um, that's not a bad shout, in my opinion. Do you like it, Seb? I uh, sort of. The Arsenal thing I can't quite warm to, but it would make sense. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Okay, fine. That's as, that's as good as you're going to get from me. Yeah, from yeah, yeah, Arsenal matter, yeah. uh, we'll be back in just a moment. Okay, we're back. Um, I want to talk about Wales now, Alex, um, because what happened with Wales... It's a good question, uh, isn't it? Yeah. yeah not you weren't ready to start again, were you? You're typing. I was tight. I was just telling the group what my football shirt and energy drink were. Oh, right. Um, because yeah. for some reason they're interested. Sure. Um, what happened to Wales? I mean, they didn't react is the main thing. And yeah. what, what disappointed me from that perspective was that I thought the way that Wales played against Italy was incredibly smart. Um, and it was, I think it was the last pod I was on, wasn't it? Where, where Rob Page instituted this weird mm, defense mm. slash build up system, which I hadn't seen before. Um, Bale, Dan James, Aaron Ramsey, where they're contributing, they're doing well. There was that, um, graphic that I showed you earlier where Dan James and Gareth Bale are in the top 15 of all players in the Euros or prior to this set of games for, uh, adding value via passing in terms of progressive passing. They seem to have a lot of things that were going right for them. And mm. in this game, not only was there a complete inability to respond to uh, Denmark's tactical change, which is, I think, out of character for what Rob Page had showed as a coach in the last game, which was mm. really innovative and interesting. Um, I thought Bale just faded out of the game. Dan yeah. James looked frustrated. And then after a while, you started to see that mixture, I think, of fatigue and frustration that starts to bubble up in players. And then you get rash challenges. You get free kicks conceded where they shouldn't have been. I think Kiefer Moore started to feel like he was never going to get a decision in his favour and that rubbed him up the wrong way. Um and and that's when it sort of starts to implode. And I think 4-0, I, I wouldn't say that it flattered Denmark in the sense that they did play very well, but it was very much a scoreline that Wales kind of inflicted on themselves sure. at the end. Seb, uh, Henry Cook, TIFO Illustrator, tweeted during the game, uh, Joe Rodon, more like Joe Nodon. And Henry also encourages people to steal that sure. and use it for themselves and claim it as their own. That's kind of what I've done. Yeah, I don't think there was any any problem with Joe Roden. I just think I think it was just an opportunity for a terrible joke it, it, and a, a, an opportunity well taken. Did you get it, yellow card in the first ten minutes, though? Yeah, he was caught grappling around the halfway line and yeah. gave the referee no choice but to book him, which is um, a little bit rash. But it 
it felt kind of indicative of what happened to Wales. There were a lot of bad decisions. It should be said that actually they, they got a little bit unlucky, I felt, with the second goal because although clearly that was a, a mistake of their own making, I don't really understand why that wasn't a foul on Kiefer Moore mm. in the build-up. That was quite strange. Uh, you could probably argue that uh, a player of his size should probably protect the ball a bit better, maybe, but it's still a foul, I think. Gareth Bale thought that too. Yeah, that was a weird old interview. Well, I was going to ask you about the interview because um, yeah, I, this is yeah, after the game. Yeah. I mean, and and I didn't see it actually, but you mentioned to me that Bale kind of left mid-question whilst being asked about his future, uh, i.e., is this his last game? Now, on the one hand, I imagine after a loss like that in uh, European Championships, um, he's probably kind of devastated about it and doesn't want to be talking about his his club career. I I understand, and I say this as someone with all the admiration in the world for Gareth Bale's career. I think you can handle that a bit better because I think. Like if you're a professional athlete and you get asked the same question again and again, I'm sure it gets really boring. Let's play devil's advocate here, though. Yeah, right? Who cares? Why does it matter? It's, it's not about why does it matter. It's about if you're in that position as a journalist or as a reporter or as an interviewer, the guy who's doing his job, the guy asking the question, is asking the question that if he doesn't ask, he gets shouted at by a producer. Sure. He's just doing his job. And I, I just didn't. I don't know. Like I think, do, you, I think, do you feel bad for the for the uh, the the interviewer? No, I, I no because I, I don't know the interviewer. I, I'm sure I would if I did, but I, I think I I don't know. Like I I, I think highly of Gareth Bale. I I just felt there was a better way to do that. I'm not, why does, it's not it, a major why does criticism. it change your opinion though? You know, like, it doesn't, isn't I, it kind I, of fun just to walk off if you don't like a question? I mean, I, I wish I could do that. If it was a question which was, I um, wish you would do that. <laughs> <laughs> If it was, <laughs> there he goes. If it if it was a question, if it was a question that was insulting or um, shouldn't have been asked, of course, absolutely. Yeah. I just felt that it's the obvious question because at the end of the domestic season, Gareth Bale gave a very ambiguous answer about what his future. Yeah, lay. he also said within that answer, "I'm going to talk about it after the year is finished." Sure. Now he didn't mean five minutes yeah, after the yeah. year is finished. I understand that. I just mean that it just didn't look great, and I. <clears throat> If that's the last thing, you know, there are rumours about him potentially retiring. If that's his last action on a football pitch, it would be a shame. It's just a shame. It's, it's because he's been a, such a wonderful player, and he. So, um, I don't know. I, just, I didn't didn't like it personally. I'm not. It's not a big deal. I no, just, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was. Um, it was a bit strange. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess I want to go back to Denmark just before we finish now, because yeah. uh, Denmark, of course. Uh, won the game they were gone to face the winner of uh, Netherlands and Czech Republic in the quarterfinals which you have to say not a terrible draw is it? No the Netherlands I think have have surprised us sure um, and there's there's a the two main reasons for that is that everybody knows that Frank de Boer has had a pretty disastrous managerial career apart from his stint at Ajax uh, and there are a lot of very talented Dutch young players who weren't selected for the squad or weren't initially getting minutes. And he's done a bit of a vault fast on Veghorst and made Veghorst really the kind of leading guy of this attack, which love has worked him. superbly for Absolutely him. Absolutely love Veghorst. He's also played Wijnaldum in this kind of fairly free role, playing mm. ahead of a midfield double pivot. He's Kind of in the 10. It, it is kind of in the 10. Uh, and then he's... I did better that time. That was good. Yeah, yeah well done. Thanks. 
Uh, and then like the young Graven Birch, which was brought in for the last game, you know, there's, there's a huge amount of encouraging signs there for the Netherlands. Mm. Um, the Czechs are what we thought they'd be, which is obdurate, resilient, but with that dash of flair that Schick brings. Yeah. Um, at the danger of, of Sushek popping up from deep. So it's a hard one to call. I, I think if you'd, I think the Netherlands probably are a worse draw now than anybody would have said that they were at the beginning of the tournament. Yeah. Um, Is it quite fun in a way to think that one of those three teams will be going to the semifinals? Yeah. I, I think it's great because I think that the Netherlands have grown into something like we hoped they might be. Mm hmm. Um, the Czechs are just well-organized, well-put-together and have a really exciting striker. Yeah. And Denmark, yes, there's the narrative around that, which, you know, a lot of people are emotionally invested in for reasons that I do understand. But also, as Seb pointed out, they're here on merit. They're Great playing team. really good football. Yeah. yeah. And so I think any one of those sides would be great personally i would prefer it to be denmark in the semi-finals because that chimes with what i said ahead of the tournament but <laughs> uh for no other reason than that um but i you know i think i think it's it's great when teams who aren't a traditional powerhouse or are a traditional powerhouse but have been pretty weak of late like the netherlands show that they are there and able to cope with the rigors of international football and adapt intelligently to it yeah uh and, and play good football yeah because that's what you want to you want to see good matchups don't you rigors rigors well, yeah you said rigor didn't you oh yes no i, I to the rigors yeah well i and i i suppose i mean in that perspective the the mental rigors because i think for example again without being too harsh on wales there was definitely a mental element to Wales's defeat today. Big time. Um, yeah. And particularly given what Denmark have been through, that's, that is not there. You know, there's an extraordinary amount of resilience with the way that they've managed to cope with the tactical and technical demands of what they're doing against the backdrop of what's occurred. Yeah. Um, that's hugely impressive. Okay. Would you, which one would you be happiest with making it to the quarters? Semis. semis, semis. What, to watch or if I was Denmark? Oh, no, I mean, of those three teams that could oh, potentially... I see. Um, I'm curious. I'm just, I'm just curious of your thoughts. The thing is, we, we spoke about this before we started recording. I, I've got a bit of a fear about what the semifinals and quarterfinals is going to look like because we've got a lot of good teams meeting early. Mm. Um, I think the Netherlands are the strongest side. I think they also have the uh, the greatest star power of those three teams. Um, so I, I think their midfield will kind of see them through if they get through to, to reach Denmark, uh, to, to play Denmark. Wijnaldum, De Jong, it's good midfield that. Um, and I think that they can have, if they were to come up against a France or an Italy or a Portugal or a Germany, I think they can have a proper swing at them. They, they look, I think they're still fragile, but I, I think they're fun to watch at the moment. They're playing mm. a kind of a, an expressive form of, game, of, of the game. And actually, I know that he's been a little bit of a figure of fun, but it's quite a nice redemption story for Frank de Boer. If they do something, yeah. because all he's really associated with at the moment as a coach is failure, and if he were to go and go and win the European Cup, uh, the European Championship with with his country, that's kind of a middle finger to his critics in a way. Um, so that would be interesting. It's great to see Daly Blint playing great football. Sure as well. is, sure is. Yeah, we should say too that um, of the teams that they might meet in, one of those three teams reaching the semi final of the teams that they they might be more likely to meet. 
one of Germany or England could be in that semi-final too. So yeah, and interesting. also uh, I know a lot gets said about uh, Germany and England, but the true rivalry between the true rivalry in that era of Europe is Germany and the, and the Netherlands. Real dislike there, and that would be a, that would be a semi-final. A lot of history behind that match as well. Um, you know, sporting and social, and uh, yeah, it'd be a very very compelling contest, and hopefully played in front of a lot of people because we think yeah. capacities will. Have grown by then. Fingers so, crossed. Though. Fingers crossed. Yes. Well, it's points are bad time now. <sighs> they really are bad today. Points are good. <laughs> but listen, 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 listeners and viewers. Uh, there's some new rules that I need to bring to your attention. With points are bad now. Alex is shaking his head over there, as you can see, uh, because uh, he thinks it's complicated. It's not complicated. He just didn't read my WhatsApp message in full. It was very long. But I'll explain to you now. What's changed about the rules of points are bad moving forwards uh, from the, the knockout stages all the way to the final? Two new things. Two new things, okay? The first thing is that, and I feel retrospectively, if I could be bothered to work it out, this would apply and will apply for the next time we play this game. If you get a perfect score, you get minus a point because it feels like zero points just isn't, isn't you know, you want to get rid of one of the bad points. Give one bad point back. So that's a new thing. If you get a perfect score you get minus a point, and that's lovely. Very exciting for everyone involved, okay? Here's an additional thing, though. An additional prediction that you may choose to make or not make. A gamble, you might call it, to decide whether you want to predict uh, if the game will finish at the end of extra time or if the game will finish at the end of penalties. Now, there's a real bonus here, because if you don't have to, but if you choose to say, I think the game's going to finish at the end of extra time, and it does finish at the end of extra time, irrelevant of what your score prediction was and what the score is, see, it's not complicated at all, you either, <laughs> you would get a, a minus point for that. That's a positive thing. Uh, if you predict that it ends at the end of extra time and it ends at the end of 90 minutes or it ends at the end of penalties, you'd get a plus point, and you'd feel very silly because you didn't need to make that. So this rule is there for people who are lagging behind. I don't know who they might be, but someone like, I don't know, myself, for example, who's just a bit lagging behind and might need to, in every game, <laughs> make a prediction about whether it's going to go to extra time or not, just to try to claw one's way back into... Uh, the proceedings. So that's all. Now here's some other things to consider. Tactics for this game, as you might, strategy, as Alex would prefer it to be called. You might want to predict 2-1 and penalties. Now that seems like it doesn't make any sense, right? It does, because they're separate predictions, right? So you might, you might think 2-1, that seems like a good prediction for a score. You might throw penalties on top of that. You're not saying it'll be 2-1 and then go to penalties, because I, I can't work like that. But you're sort of maximising, you're spreading. Yeah, you're maximising. Yeah, it's an insurance policy. It's an insurance policy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone else said something. Oh. Yeah, but insurance policy, which is also a massive gamble, which doesn't feel very insurance-y. But, no, you know. but, you know, who doesn't love to gamble? Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm going to need to do a lot of that over the next... Yeah, uh, you're going to have to... Next uh, three weeks to try and get back you're in. You're going to have to hedge a lot of those bets. <laughs> because I'm in last place now on 89 points. See, today I made a gamble. And the gamble was that Wales would win 2-1, which obviously didn't happen. I earned five points there, five bad points on the basis of my poor prediction. I also predicted that the game would go to extra time, and it didn't. <laughs> so I got an extra point because of that. Six points from one game. Really unfortunate there. Uh, and an additional point, of course, every, everybody predicted that Italy would win 2-0 today. So we were almost all right. We were almost all right, but we weren't because of Austria. 
but I will tell you now that uh, JJ also had quite a bad day. He thought Wales were going to win too. So as such, JJ is uh, has now sort of dropped back to seventy nine points, seven ahead, uh, seven behind you, Alex, on seventy two. So Alex is leading the way quite firmly at the moment. It's going to take something, or even just one bad prediction. Boring, boring, boring. Tell them about the battle that matters. Well, the battle that matters, sir, is a battle which also has seven points in it now (laughs) because of my very bad day and your very good day. I think you predicted um, uh, Denmark to win 2-1. I had Denmark 2-0. 2-0, you're right. uh, That late burst of goals kind of ruined it. So you only gained three points uh, today and that's that's half of what I gained on one game. Yes. So uh, you are on 82 points and I'm on 89. Uh, I think I'm going to need to predict extra time for almost every game going forward. Just or so introduce a new rule back. at some point, possibly yeah. for the next round. <laughs> Maybe I will. Some kind of 20-point bonus Maybe that I will. gets introduced. <clears throat> no, listen, I'm aware that there are some people at home listening who've adopted the points of bad game. Now, I think we had to come up with some new rules uh, for points of bad because of the new potential game states available in the knockout stages, right? And as I said before, the perfect score thing, it really should have been in there from the beginning. It's just, it's just fair. So we would have done that for next time too. Now, is you know, that complicated? You, know, you tell me. It's not complicated. <laughs> you, we it, should have not. decided this, you know, a couple of days ago when we were last together, when we were uh, at the Old Red Lion Theatre Pub in mm. uh, Angel Islington, True. having a really, really nice time on those True. comfortable sofas, watching yeah. lovely football on this the TV. This is not an ad, but that not pub ad, really is great. the best pub we to go to in London. We should have talked about this rule change at the Old Red Lion. Yeah, we should have, have been a better venue. Because, you know, when I'm at the Old Red Lion... I feel happier. I feel happier. I feel clear-headed. It's a better venue for everything. I feel creative. Yeah. I feel, I feel relaxed. emboldened feel by happy. my friends there. Everyone's you know? so friendly. You know? And you can see the football wherever you sit. Fran- friendly Stan, friendly Will, friendly Uncle Damien, yeah. friendly Rolo the dog. Yeah, very friendly. Friendly, friendly, friendly. I Everyone's friendly. And yeah. even I like it. Sure. Even Alex likes it and he hates pubs. There you go. And people, actually, don't you as well? <laughs> yeah, they have people there too. And you like all the people there. Yeah. Well, the people mm. we've mentioned. I mean, yeah, the yeah. ones yeah. that you've mentioned yeah. specifically. And we're okay name. as well. Seriously, though, if you go in, do ask for Uncle Damien. He will tell you stories yeah. of Essex in the 70s. Right. It's the end now of the podcast. We will be back, of course, tomorrow to discuss... Whatever the games are tomorrow. In fact, we're supposed to do our predictions, aren't we? Let me just quickly get up, get up what those games are. Don't know what they are. God knows. Fixtures. Tomorrow. Ooh, Netherlands, Czech Republic and Belgium, Portugal. Of course, of course. Alex, let's begin with you. Netherlands, Czech Republic, please go, 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 go. Uh, Watch him predict very low scores so that he can't be beaten now. <laughs> He's going to pretend he doesn't care about this game, but he does You're going to go for a big 5-4. Sure. Stop trying to convince me. <laughs> I will do it. Go. 2-1 two, Netherlands. Okay. Belgium, um, Portugal? Uh, Belgium, Portugal... 2-1 Belgium are for extra time. Oh, okay. Okay. So what you're saying is that if the game were to go to penalties, you would get minus a point for saying it ended at extra time. No. Yeah, you would. Gosh. That's the rules. Yeah, no, I was being sarcastic because I sat through that okay. monologue. He's, he understands now. I was I just double, He didn't understand before. He, he was very confused for most of the day. Seb, That's uh, true. Netherlands, Czech Republic? 3-1 Netherlands. Oh. And Belgium, Portugal, I will say... Uh, 2-1, Belgium. Okay, it's exciting, isn't it? Sure is. Uh, Netherlands, Czech Republic. 
I'm going to say, stop saying things in my mind. Golden goal. I'm going to say that it will be 2-0 to the Netherlands. And for Belgium, Portugal, I'm going to be a bit more risky. And I'm going to say that it'll be 2-2. Portugal on away goals. And Portugal will win on away goals. (laughs) Portugal will win on penalties. Lovely. There we go. Lovely. So that was a mistake I've made there. I'm just going to change that quickly. I'm going to say Belgium will win 3-2 and penalties. Okay? But really, I mean, Portugal are going to win on penalties. Yeah? So those are my two separate predictions now. See, you've confused me again. That, so I'm just putting two separate things, aren't I? Yeah. Both, they both need to be true. But, uh, I don't, but they are both true. They have, one is contingent on the other. Yeah, but I'm bargaining on being close with the... You're manipulating reality... Well, I'm predicting 3-2 to Belgium, but if the game would we end up to being 2-2, <laughs> I'm just you saying very confused. It doesn't make sense. It's not confusing. It, it is the end now, though. It's not real. Will Hinsley in the chat says, I don't understand. Well, no. it's not a complicated world. Some, <laughs> somebody said that mark. points are bad. Shoot By the end, bad. you're just going to decide that points are, in fact, good. And that you've won anyway. I've been rumbled. <laughs> Which is I've been great I've already got the song written. Big Mad yeah. Andy says points are getting worse. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'd I'd agree. They very Big much Mad are. Andy. It feels that way. Right. It feels very, very desperate. Anyway, speaking of desperate, that's the end of the podcast now. So, Alex Stewart, thanks to you. Thanks. And Seb Stafford Blort, thanking you also. Thank you, Joe Devine. We'll be back tomorrow to talk about all the game's coverage. And as usual, thank you to our production team, our crack team of uh, Don and Sol over there. And you can see Sol's hand there. What a lovely hand. Great hand. That's the end of the episode. Au revoir, goodbye, guten tag, and farewell, listeners. Listeners.